This podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia, a major national partner of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and also the sponsor of the Flying Doctor podcast series. You're listening to a DM podcast. You know, my first trip out to Yam Island in the chopper, we actually had a, we hit a big storm and the, the pilot could only fly by, by visual flight rules. So he could only fly if he could see and we couldn't see anything at all. So we actually had to land on this sort of little deserted island that had nothing on it. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. As a note, this interview brings up the subject of teen suicide. If this is a topic that's difficult for you, please skip this episode and tune into one of our many other stories. This is not the first time Katrina Starmer has been on the Flying Doctor podcast. In episode number five, a long time ago now, she does a great job of telling us about a Queensland ranger who was mauled by a crocodile. The ranger had been fishing and the crocodile came up out of the water and degloved his hand. As a consequence, the Royal Flying Doctor service had to come to pick him up. I wanted to interview Katrina again as her background is so interesting and she also has some fascinating work she's been involved in. Hi, Katrina. Hi, Lana. Thanks so much for coming to chat with me today. Could you tell me a little bit about your childhood growing up in Townsville? Yeah, I was very lucky to grow up in Townsville, even though it was a regional town. We were there on the Ross River and I got to spend a lot of my childhood swimming in the river and jumping out of the rain trees with uh, my friends, doing backflips off the swing, all those things. And I was, uh, even though I was a a regional town girl, I, I had a um, mum and dad that both grew up in relatively uh, rural, remote sort of uh, areas. Dad grew up in Ilbilby, which is a tiny little town of only about 300 people um, near Mackay. And, uh, you know, he he was uh, on a cattle property there where his dad had to cut down trees to build a house and build cattle yards and he had to bath in a copper and he sort of instilled in me this sort of uh, love for rural lifestyle just with his stories and uh, mum grew up in the Burdekin uh, in a cane farming family. She had a family who, you know, for sport would do clay pigeon shoots rather than, you know, um, netball or soccer. Wow. And um, so I, I really enjoyed the immersion in rural life that my mum and dad gave me and it sort of instilled in me a real love to work rurally and uh, I always wanted to do medicine as a little kid and uh, ever since I was little, sort of wanted that rural fix. And um, so I've been really lucky now to work for the Royal Flying Doctors. Now, you had a friend, Katrina, her name was or is Clancy. 
Um, how did you end up working um, at the Abingdon Down Station in the Queensland Gulf Country? So I met Clancy on, I think, the first day that she turned up to school. She was 12 years old and um, someone grabbed me by the arm and said, uh, Katrina, um, there's this girl who can sing the Dixie Chicks and Dolly Parton. And I was like, what? Because, like, nobody in Townsville in the 1990s at that stage that I knew were really into country music except me. So I was so excited and I ran over and I met this girl who just had this incredible voice. And Clancy went on, actually, to she ended up doing Australian Idol and she uh, with Jessica Mowboy, actually, and um, Guy Sebastian. Wow. And she ended up... um, being invited she got invited to sing for the pope when mary mckillar became was made a saint so she she even though she's not catholic which is quite ironic so i I had this friend who was just this incredible singer and um she came from this property out in the gulf called abingdon downs well at the time she was they were actually on ironhurst before they moved to abingdon and she invited me out to work on the property when i was just little uh in grade eight or nine So you would have been, what, about 14 or 15? 14 years old. Wow. And I I went out and in the holidays I'd catch a bus or I'd catch the mail plane out to Abingdon Downs and I'd go and, you know, try to ride a horse and try and muster and keep up with the boys and the men and uh, all these things that I'd sort of never experienced as a kid, you know, camping out in swags. Um, going in the blitz buggy down, you know, for miles and miles to different mobs out in the middle of nowhere and, um, and, and bringing the cattle into to the yards. And I remember one, one day I was riding my horse uh, behind Clancy's brother and he was cutting through this rubber vine with a, like a machete-type knife and one of the rubber vines flicked back into my eye and cut the bottom of my eye. And the next day, because I didn't want to bother anybody, um, I woke up and my eye was huge oh, and no. <laughs> the, uh, Campbell said, um, you know, we're going to have to get you to the Royal Flying Doctors because eyes are really important things. And so I got to see uh, one of the Royal Flying Doctors and I actually remember, I'm pretty sure it was Dean Murray who actually just reached a 30-year milestone with the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Cairns, um, who's now my colleague. Uh, so that was a really memorable experience for me and something that really inspired me to want to become a Royal Flying Doctor myself. So so they flew out, they made the call, the Flying Doctor came out, landed. What were your impressions as a, a young teenager with that plane and with that doctor getting off? Were you embarrassed or shy or were you excited or how were you feeling? Well, they were actually, they flew out to do a clinic in Georgetown, which is just uh, about an hour and a half away. So we drove into town and that, unfortunately, you know, they had to take a day off mustering to get me into town. And so all these things to consider, it's not like just going down to your GP down the road, making an appointment. Yeah. And I, I was just so inspired by what a cool job this was. And I said, I remember saying to Campbell, man, I'd love to do this one day and sort of thinking it was just a pipe dream. Um, but another time I was working at Abingdon a few years later and it happened to be a field day. So where the Royal Flying Doctors takes doctors and nurses and allied health professionals out to cattle stations and they bring out, you know, models and do first aid education. And, you know, the, the cook, the chef at the at property will, you know, bake scones and dumplings. And we have this big feast and it's like this fabulous day off mustering in the heat. And we all sit around and eat yummy food and the doctors do a clinic. And um, I was so inspired uh, by this field day. Not only was it a day off 
I think it was my last second last day or something working that mustering season and the uh, pilot said to me do you want to lift back to Cairns on the plane and I was was just beside myself so they can't do this anymore like they would never just ask a random person to get on the plane because of you know all the different uh, regulations that there are these days but I remember I went back um, on the plane on the rural flying doctor plane back to Cairns and they sort of left me out the front of the rural flying doctor's uh base where I now work and I remember sitting out there as a 17 year old or something that going oh well what what next <laughs> wow wide-eyed bushy-tailed and just so keen wow that's a great story so so from there when you finished school I presume you headed straight to university to to train is that right yeah I I actually there was no medical school in Townsville at the time there was no JCU that's how old I am and I had to go to Brizzy and, um, you know, got involved in the Brisbane scene and played rugby union and did. I ended up doing physio because there was no undergraduate medicine and then I worked as a physio for the, the Reds, um, the rugby union team, as a masseuse uh, at that stage. And then um, I thought, well, look, I, I need to do medicine. I need to get my act together. And so I did medicine and then realised I had to do a specialty. What did you choose? Yeah, emergency medicine was really exciting. So, you know, there's so much action and there's, there's a lot of, um, you feel like you, you're making a difference to someone who's having a really bad day. Yeah. Um, and so that really inspired me and I wanted to, um, you know, see, see what I could do, maybe work overseas or work in developing countries. So I finished my emergency fellowship I had met my husband at that stage who was actually a, a Mariba boy. So he grew up in a small town up just an hour from Cairns where I had um, worked close by uh, at Abingdon. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, this is he's pretty cute and uh, I'd love to go back and live up there. And it's um, it was quite ironic because his dad was actually like the um, head of the Tobacco Growers Association because Mariba had a big tobacco industry at that time and anyway Greg my husband ended up um, going doing med school and ended up being a cardiologist so he went from sort of uh, being from a family that was in the tobacco industry to uh, to a doctor who uh, now treats people who've uh, been smoking too much (laughs) so uh, anyway so we moved back to Cairns and it's been um, it's been fabulous wow and so at what point did you then decide hey I've I've done all this training. I want to go back to that original goal when I was 15, 16. I want to join the Flying Doctor. Yeah, well, I I still work in emergency and I still love the diversity of um, patient presentations that you see in ED. But as I was getting to my middle age, I thought, um, you know, I'm having a midlife crisis. I need to do something. So rather than buy a Harley Davidson, which is uh, expensive and dangerous, I thought I'll do another fellowship. So I did a fellowship in rural and remote medicine, um, which allowed me to work for the Royal Flying Doctors, not just as a retrievalist, so going out and picking up sick patients, like what the uh, emergency physicians I could do as an emergency physician, but also to work as a GP. So going out to, I go out to Chiligo and I have my own little community there, again, of 300 people. Um, and I get to get to know these people and spend time with them and really invest in this little community and feel like I'm a part of it. So that's been really special for me. So that must be a big change, isn't it, from being ED or emergency medical 
uh, focus where you you have a patient come in, you see them for a short period, it's acute, it's whatever it is, it's a it needs to be done now and fast, and then you don't see them again. Whereas once you move into this sort of GP field, you'll you've got lots of time to actually spend getting to know um, a person, getting to know their family and seeing them regularly. Has that been a major shift for you as a professional? It has, yeah. There's been, you know, in life you sort of have formative experiences and you also have, you know, really formative people that come into your life and to shift from, you know, the rush of emergency medicine to um, being able to interact with uh, my patients on a more intimate and slower pace is has been really interesting. Um, I also got to, you know, experience different things. So I got to go and work up on Thursday Island, which was just amazing as part of my rural um, and remote training. And to have these experiences, like I, I remember um, at one time I was in a helicopter flying out to, to Yam Island to go and spend time with um, the people of, of Yam Island and, you know, they contract these young helicopter pilots to take us out. And I just had these flashbacks of, you know, when I used to be in the helicopter in the, with the chopper musters, um, spotting yeah. sort of clean skins and looking for cattle um, out on Abingdon. And um, I remember how I felt like they were, they were almost almost a bit reckless. I don't know if people who know of, you know, chopper musters, they're amazing people that can do these incredible things. And I had these flashbacks and, uh, you know, my first trip out to Yam Island in the chopper, we actually had a, we hit a big storm and the, the pilot could only fly by, by visual flight rules. So he could only fly if he could see and we couldn't see anything at all. So we actually had to land on this sort of little deserted island that had nothing on it. And I just sort of thought, wow, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm young again. I'm, this is really living. Uh, wow. Sort of caused, caused me a little bit of, um, sort of tr- it was a little bit triggering. But, um, you know, the, all these things that uh, your, your career and, and bring back and uh, provide to you, they, they're really formative experiences. And I've been, I've been very grateful that I've been able to experience them, you know, meet mm-hmm. some really cool people and, and experience some really interesting sort of things. So when did you actually come to start working for the Royal Flying Doctor Service then? What what year was it? Well, I uh, just received my five-year service commemoration last week. Ah, wow. See, it's not long, is it? I feel like you've been with us forever, but <laughs> it's it's really not that long. That's Well, that's brilliant. So could you tell me a little bit about what your day-to-day is like, um, Katrina, in terms of is it is it the same on a daily basis or is there a never-ending change of, of what you're working on? I have three different roles. I get to fly out to Chiligo, as mentioned, and I do like real hands-on GP work, which I do love because I, I really enjoy seeing the patients uh, of Chiligo. I also do telehealth. So the Rural Flying Doctors has this amazing telehealth service that's a statewide service. Um, actually, anyone can call it. Um, but uh, to get this, you know, fabulous medical advice. Uh, but it's uh, sort of like a well-kept, really well-kept sort of secret for rural and remote people who know and have medical chests. So they have these big green metal boxes that are full of medicines. And when they live a long way away from town and from doctors, then um, they're able to call us up and we give them a consult over the phone and they're able to get the medicine out of the chest and treat themselves with whatever medicine um, is required. And it's it's quite interesting because um, just last year, the Royal Flying Doctors employed the, fir- the first pharmacist, 
which is just this wonderful shift. And um, I, I joked with her because I, I said it's quite funny that we've been, the, the organisation's been dispensing medicines for like 100 years since foundation in 1928. And uh, she's got uh, 100 years worth of auditing to do now. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's fabulous. So I'm on the phone and I get to talk to people on properties just like I was um, on that property when I hurt my eye. And they, they call in and they might say, oh, you know, my, um, my son's fallen off his motorbike. He's bro- it looks like he's broken his arm or they might say my little girl's got, you know, this thing, um, a big um, sort of itchy eye or that's um, really red or they might say oh, my little baby's got a fever and we're able mm-hmm. to talk them through um, medicine and also what to do, whether they should be going into town for review or whether we just watch and wait. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. a really rewarding part of the job is the telehealth. We've done a lot of podcast stories that talk about telehealth from all over the country because, of course, um, the Royal Flying Doctor Service has a service footprint nationally and telehealth is something that we deliver everywhere. Have you found the the work that you do on telehealth lines, Katrina, is it challenging being based in a in a metro area like Cairns or regional? I mean, I, I probably I should say Cairns is regional. But if you if you're based there and then you're talking to somebody who's hundreds of kilometres away and and is worried about a health condition, is that challenging to do over such a long distance? And and how do you um, manage expectations and and manage that triaging? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and. One of the things is it's really valuable that, um, you know, the organisation, we actually go out to the to many of the small towns and do clinics there. So we actually, it's so wonderful that you get a feel for what is, you know, are there nurses there? Are there paramedics? How far is it from the local place? Do they have x-ray? You know, do they have a lab? Do they have the ability to drive to the, you know, to Weeper or to Mount Isa or do they need mm. to get a flight? So, you know, to have this really critical, crucial institutional and local knowledge almost, um, it really, it makes it a, a really valuable and special sort of uh, role. Yes, it is challenging because you can't see your patients and you can't do an examination. So it's all done over the phone, but we do use video sort of link as well which is really useful. It, mm. it is, it's a really rewarding job, but there are risks associated. And, you know, we want to provide the same level of care for people in the bush that people in metro centres get. Um, but that can, you know, mean, you know, inconvenience for, for people in the bush. They have to drive, they have to travel to get reviewed face-to-face, you know, all these things. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, Katrina, but we actually have a number of research projects that are going to be underway over the course of the next couple of years that really look at technologies that can be adopted uh, in remote areas. So one of them, for example, is pathology tests. So how to actually do pathology tests and get the results without having to wait two or three or four weeks, you know, for those bloods to be taken to where they need to go and then for them to be assessed and then for them to be the results to come back. Um, So there's a number of actual research projects being trialled around the country over coming years to be able to um, just really um, more and more use technology to improve that health access that just because of where somebody lives shouldn't then make their access to those services more difficult, if that makes sense. Like we have to just get more and more innovative, which I think 
is it's, it really ties in with our history because our history has always been around innovation and so that innovation continues. I was listening the other day to our research team and they've got a whole bunch of medical devices and systems and all manner of things that they're, they're quite excited about um, and even drones and all sorts of stuff. So I look forward in the course of the next few years to be doing podcast stories about, you know, radical new modes of service <laughs> that Absolutely. we've piloted. Yeah, so that's another part of my role. So um, is I'm the virtual health medical education lead for the state, which is really um, exciting. And I get to do projects. And one of my projects is, well, I had started this um, presentation uh, called Survive 25, which is to school students to try and help them avoid end up ending up needing a doctor and avoid getting injured or, you know, having um, serious injury or illness or even death from misadventure and from you know drugs and wow things like that why did you decide that that was something that was needful well i i've had a couple of experiences in my youth of friends who who have been involved in accidents and who have um unfortunately passed away um and it's it can be triggering talking about suicide and i do um i am mindful of that but i have also had friends at, at 14 who actually that took their own life and this sort of was really formative for me and and I wanted to I sort of wanted to talk to young people about things they could do and things they could avoid to not have to come and see me in the emergency department and yeah. not have to have me fly out to them you know when they've when they've hurt themselves because like you know there's so many risks in life and and adding sort of misadventure to to that is it sort of can be unnecessary so I thought I'll create this program and I'm, I'm I'm running it now through the Royal Flying Doctor Service so that I can go out and talk to young people um, and you know tell them stories from work and they sort of sit there wide-mouthed and listening and it's quite incredible because you know they're all grade 12ers they're all 17 18 years old and at the beginning they're all you know mucking around and sort of laughing and stuff and then by the end of the talk they are just and they look they look at me for one it's a one and a half hour presentation and they watch me the whole time and I I don't think I could sit still for one and a half hours but I think it's just so interesting for them to see what really happens in an emergency department and with you know the Royal Flying Doctors and and to see that they can prevent um, ending up in a situation where they are ill or injured themselves. What sort of stories do you tell them? I, I presume they're all stories, real stories, real patient stories of things that you've seen. They are. So some of them are from my work and some of them are from my friends and family. So I've got a, a video of um, my next door neighbour who they were um, climbing onto the roof of their house off the utes whilst intoxicated and um, jumping into the pool. And one of the young boys slipped because, of course, he was wet from uh, swimming and he, and he falls on his head and he's down. <gasps> and, you know, I talk about um, being intoxicated and and making choices and, and taking drugs and risk minimisation and I talk about even things like throwing petrol on a fire, you know, that it's just incredible. We, we still have people come to the emergency department frequently after throwing petrol on a fire and they get this, uh, you know, quite significant blast to their face and and hands usually and so you know if if I can sort of talk to them about about these things and show them some you know pictures that of course I've got consent to show you know they actually find it really amazing hopefully they won't need to experience that for themselves and at the end I always say to them you know I hope I never see you again. (laughs) 
Oh, look, I think I think that's just brilliant. I really do. I, I did a podcast, episode number 54, with a lovely lady. She's now in her 20s. But I'll say that this, this interview really, I really struggled with it because um, this was her telling her story about what she did when she was 15. She was in Tasmania and she was with her an older sister who was 18 um, and they'd both sort of snuck out the window at night and uh, were drinking alcohol uh, without their parents knowing. And um, she got behind the wheel of a car and in uh, regional Tasmania or, you know, sort of backwards Tasmania, she rolled the car and the accident, what happened to her, her injuries were so horrific that she was virtually sliced in half. And it's taken her, you know, 10 years to recover. And uh, there was two things that really impacted me with the story. One of them was that, A, my teenage son had his L's when I did the interview. <laughs> So all I could think of was my teenage son and, you know, um, imagine if this was my teenage son. But the other thing was that she said something to me which really resonated because I asked her, do you have any advice for other teenagers based on your experience? And she said, uh, yes. She said, look, you know, you think you're invincible but you're not and really you need to you need to think about the choices that you make. And I thought it was really a profound advice from somebody whose life had been so severely impacted by a bad choice that she made at 15. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that, it's quite validating for me. I sort of do the talk and then afterwards, pretty much each each school that I go to, I might get a, one parent or one kid come up to me and or the parent might email me and say, thank you so much. We've had this tragedy in our family or, you know, my teenager was just so blown away by you know your words and and that is that so makes such a difference like I feel as if if I can prevent one young person from hurting themselves or from being involved in a in a major incident that it's worth it um and I, I tell the the students that trauma and suicide unfortunately are the, you know the leading causes of of death in young people and if um you know if at least they can make some good choices then yeah. you know just um that if they get through those trying years where they're, they're at risk of um, from misadventure and things at the age of 25, you know, then actually the statistics are that then you'll last until you're sort of in your 60s where you yeah. sort of die from other things like heart attacks and strokes. Yeah, you just have to get through. You have to survive <laughs> till you're 25, which is That's why. Right. And then you're pretty yeah. hard after that until, uh, until later. I think, Katrina, I'm going to make a suggestion here. I think we should record your presentation and, and make it broadly available because I reckon there'd be people all around the country that would love to hear a Royal Flying Doctor Service doctor making that presentation to kids of that age and that it would have a, a lot of resonance across the country, frankly. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that sounds great. This year, because more and more schools have been requesting it, so this year I actually thought maybe I'll ask for a donation to um, to the RFDS from from the schools, and it's been great mm. because, like, even the pub, I, I make it optional. Like, uh, I don't want it to be un, unachievable. But even the public schools, like the the students, actually, you know, they raise money, they do these community things to to and put it towards towards a donation. So it feels like it's good. It's just good for everyone. Like, yeah. I I feel like it's you know things they can take home with them, but they also feel good about raising money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. So it's like a win-win. I think that's a brilliant program. Okay, well, there we go. We've got we've got a resolution for 2020, 
end of 2023, moving into 2024. I've got another job on my plate. (laughs) I think we'll figure out how we can do that, Katrina. I think that would be just fantastic. Well, they talk about the concept of Ikigai. I'm reading this little book about Ikigai, which is, you know, finding a purpose in life and finding a work to do. And um, that's what the Japanese people, they say they live for a long time because they've got this this ikigai, this purpose. And it's you're supposed to find something that you, the world needs, something yeah. you're passionate about, something that gives you an, a bit of an income to survive and something that you're good at. And I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, my, having done medicine and working with the RFDS and working in ED and then being able to do this program where I can come full circle back to these young people and try and help them avoid ending up back in the emergency department, um, you know, that I've found that I've, I've received a lot of um, uh, fulfilment um, and, you know, ikigai purpose from, from that. So I feel really lucky that I've been able to do that as part of my work with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. That's just brilliant. So, well, I was going to ask you the question, what do you love most about your job? But I think you've just answered it. Um, is there, <laughs> is it it's, you've been with us for five years. Um, what would be the highlight there's there's probably too many I think I think when you just enjoy your day-to-day I don't feel like you even need a highlight yeah because you're making a difference I just work with really cool people like Dean Murray who's been there for 30 years who I think treated me when I was you know 14 year old and you know all these amazing doctors and nurses and it's like this little sort of community all its own and you know I get to go out to remote areas and try and give back to the people that work so hard out in the bush and um you know it's really cool it's challenging and it can be really traumatic at times Mm. and um you know it's very important to have self-care because you know you do you do suffer from a little bit of vicarious trauma where you get just you know disrupted or disturbed by things you see and do you know you do the job you've got a purpose but then later on you know when you reflect on things just as you said you know I reflect on young people that are the same age as my my son and that that does you know challenge me as well thinking about um how that must feel for those parents and yeah so it is challenging but it's also rewarding at the same time that's fabulous I just have one more question for you Katrina do you have advice that you could share with um those who are under 25 or those who have kids that are under 25 in their family what sort of advice could you give them yeah well I just look at young people and I just think how that young people are beautiful you know they come out so perfect as a little kid and uh you know and then life sort of wears us down doesn't it and we make choices and we sort of cause harm to ourselves in different ways and I just I just hope that young people can really value themselves and value who they are and realize that you know there are people that love them whether it be you know a carer, a grandparent, an aunt, you know, a really good friend. And yeah. to to have purpose and have, have real value in themselves, knowing that they're really loved and then take care of themselves, um, that, that's what I hope, not, not only for my children but for all the young people I speak to at the schools. Uh, and probably the best part is when they come up to me afterwards and, and say thank you. And I, I think, wow, these young people, like, they're, they're you know, they might have their earrings and funny coloured hair and be gamers or whatever, you know, society sort of, you know, critiques them. But, you know, they're yeah. beautiful young people who are actually grateful and, and interested and 
and human and and I, I'm just so impressed with with young people and and the way that they respond to to me when I go and speak to them so it's really it's really wonderful oh that's wonderful thank you so much for giving me some of your time today Katrina no worries yeah I really appreciate it and we've got a date you and I were going to record we're going to video your presentation at some point early next year and we're going to make it broadly available I think there'll be much uh, demand for it. So I think we better give it a broader audience. Sounds great. Thanks, Lana. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode. And thanks again to our major sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu Ute is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.